Hi, it's Paul Camillos. Welcome to Series 6 of Shooting the Breeze. Join me and my co-host Jacinta Gavind alongside the STB crew as we cover women's hoops and women in hoops. We'll share conversations and get a little deeper with inspiring players, amazing coaches and the legends from behind the scenes. Especially in this series, we'll be talking to dream chasers that give it their all and lead with their heart. I would just like to add, I think, you know, Melbourne of any club, you know, ourselves included have done the most proactive, you know, marketing. They had a documentary made, like they're doing a lot to create a public splash. But I, I hear Bernie on a national scale, it's really hard to do that as one club in, in one, you know, market. It really needs to be a league-wide and league-led effort. In our next Dream Chasers instalment, joining us are two female powerhouses behind some of the biggest clubs in the WNBL, Bernie Dodd and Victoria Denham. Bernie is an executive director and an integral part of the Melbourne Boomers ownership group, and Vic, the president of the Sydney Flames, both join us in an insightful look into their roles and their perspectives. We're grateful to hear from two impressive leaders working hard behind the scenes while representing clubs that are fierce rivals on court they also work alongside each other as they grow investment within the sport. In their roles, they elevate women's hoops and create pathways for females from all walks of life to participate. Their priority is to support their teams and tribes, but what becomes clear and compelling is that their collective passion for the sport at all levels opens doors to so many possibilities to grow women's hoops. Enjoy. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. I'm joined by my co-host Jacinta Govind, and today we are joined by Bernie Dodd, currently the Head of People, Finance and Admin for the Melbourne Boomers and a founding member of the current ownership group. Also joining us for a second time on the show is Victoria Denham, CEO and Director of Wallamai Capital Group, co-owners of Hoops Capital and President of the Sydney Flames. Bernie, Vic, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here again. Okay. So initially, we'll just talk to each of you individually, and then we'll sort of get into some of the more common items that you're, you're both dealing with. Vic, like I said, welcome back. And it's really interesting. You've come from a really strong investment and finance background. When you were working in that space, did you ever think that you'd end up being involved in sports and holding the role of president of the Sydney Flames? You know, I maybe in my wildest dreams imagined it, but but realistically, no. Um, sports was always a passion. Women's basketball was always a passion, but never a career path. Um, and and kind of decidedly so. You know, I think uh, as I was you know mapping out what I wanted to study in school and and the career path I wanted to go on, it was very far away from uh, the world of women's basketball. So uh, super excited to be here and and super excited to bring kind of that outside perspective. Uh, into the role and, and what we're doing with the Flames. And I think, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're coming with a, a very unique skill set and a, a unique view from the point of view of, you know, the venture capital world. Um, when you first looked at the Flames, what did you see and what, what were the things that you wanted to tackle from a commercial point of view with the team and the organisation? And 
what did you want to sit back and, and do the wait and see and look and think about? Yeah, great question. I think for us and, and you know, the more I dive into it, the more parallels I see between, you know, early stage tech and, and where we are kind of sitting uh, on the landscape of time in, in women's sports and, and women's basketball, I think from a, you know, overlooked opportunity perspective and underinvested in, I think, you know, there's a lot of parallels. And, and so for us to be able to invest in, and grow the business and grow the commercial side was really kind of the lens we took and really where we think we can add value and where I think I can add the most value from, you know, connecting women's basketball into different parts of the ecosystem and different parts of my network that, you know, didn't know who the Sydney Flames were. You know, there's so many conversations I have with my with my uh, wall of my hat on that people think the Sydney Flames are a netball team or a softball team or, you know, what is that? And so for me to be even have those conversations where it's kind of, hey, this is a cool thing that we're doing. Let's bring you along for the journey and, and the implications of that on a commercial uh, perspective, I think are really, really exciting. You know, I think the real testament, if you look at the Flames this season, our, our headline sponsor is, is Harvey Norman and Katie Page, who's an incredible executive in her own right, uh, you know, talks so fondly of, of women's basketball and wanting to get involved in, and wanting to partner with us on the Flames. It's great that they've come across for both teams with the Kings and the Flames. But for her, you know, she was talking about playing basketball in, in the driveway and, and getting gravel in her knees when she was, you know, a kid playing. And, and those memories don't fade. And, and I think that excitement and that passion really exists in women's basketball. I think uh, it's just ripe for investment and, and ready for that kind of commercial trajectory to kind of scale and, and grow. Um, and so that's kind of where I really uh, spend my time and energy and focus. I think the kind of let back and, and learn from the experts is definitely on the basketball side of things. I've you know, been a lifelong fan, but I've, I've never been in a basketball role. And, and so kind of deferring to, you know, Guy and, and Chris and, and some of the seasoned women's basketball experts on, on that side of the equation and, and then really kind of leaning in and, and focusing where I can add value on the commercial side. Being involved with Hoops Capital, which means ownership of the Kings and the Flames, um, you'd be seeing a lot of the contrasts between the NBL and the WNBL and the game uh, from the different those different perspectives. What have you learnt from maybe from the NBL that's applicable to the WNBL and also vice versa? Yeah, I, I think it's so hard not to compare the two in our in our structure and in our model. You know, the biggest takeaway uh, from the NBL and the WNBL is, you know, the NBL was where, if not worse, the WNBL was, you know, 10 years ago, right? Like the, they were bankrupt. There was, you know, so many issues in clubland and then got all this external investment. You know, Larry came in and, and really kind of helped navigate and push it past that difficult period. I think the WNBL is in, unfortunately in that position where, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, money or resources at either a league or club level. And, and I think that really needs to change. And I think there's a lot of learnings across the two that could kind of, you know, learn from things that worked well and learn from things that didn't work as well and, and kind of find that, you know, happy path forward. I think some of the like interesting things from a basketball perspective, you always kind of compare, I think, the frustrations of, of not having, you know, challenges, for example, uh, with referees in the WNBL this season, whereas, you know, the NBL has implemented that quite successfully. 
you know, different rules like next stars and, and some of the, the things that the NBL do really well. I would love to see more innovation from a WNBL perspective. But I think some things that the WNBL does really well is there's, you know, some really authentic, really passionate WNBL fans that have, you know, kind of been there since the beginning. And, and I meet a lot more WNBL fans who talk about, you know, uh, the 90s and, and the early 2000s. And, and maybe that's just the audiences I'm talking to, but they've been there since those transitions. Whereas I think, you know, some of the NBL fans are, are newer to the party. You know, there's definitely some rusted on Kings fans as well. But I think uh, the passion that exists in the WNBL is, is something that NBL can really tap into as well. So moving on now, we'll just come across to you, Bernie. You have had a hands-on sporting role previously with Brighton Soccer, and you do have a finance background as well. So I'm curious, talking about Brighton Soccer and, and your commercial experience, how were those skills able to translate for you to be able to successfully negotiate equal access to facilities for the female athletes at Brighton Soccer? I think it really comes down to my style of the way I operate. Going into a soccer club which was male-dominated and trying to forge a bit more space for girls and women, I think for me it was about getting all the information I needed, forming really good relationships with all the people at the table, um, making sure I was there at meetings and discussions. I think I did a lot of listening um, before I stepped forward with with ideas and plans that I thought would, you know, make the club actually a nicer place to exist in for both male and female participants and then just constantly checking in on those plans, revisiting them, rediscussing what's best for everyone. Yeah, I just think not rushing in loudly, that's, that's not my style. I'm more of a solutions-based operator. And did you find that there was uh, initially you might have gotten pushback from the men who were involved in the in, at that club, just looking at it going, well, hang on a minute, what I hear a lot of is, but we've built this club to where it is, so we deserve the lead. Is How did you find dealing with that? Yeah, I did hear over and over again, this is the way we've always done it, this is the way it's worked for us. And it's not about attacking that, it's about bringing ideas forward that actually enhance what they have and um, how to make their experience at the club better and bringing the realisation that having as many females on the front fields as the boys and men actually makes a nicer environment for families. And our club numbers, you know, blew out to about 1,500 over those few years I was there and I think it was that new environment that, that we created that made that happen. How does one go about creating a new environment, especially with a any sporting club or um, culture or community that has a long-standing existing history? It can take, well, so I'm told, 10 years to change culture and to bring in new people and provide that sense of community. So how did you go about it? I think I was lucky to set up a good group of volunteers who were heading the different age groups and just to be on the same page. And I really think that cool, calm communication um, really led us on, on quite a quick path to making things more fair and equal. And what were some of the initial barriers you encountered before implementing some of the positive changes? 
Oh, probably a few side committees that had already decided how things were going to be. But just, you know, infiltrating those in a friendly, nice way and making sure that I picked up on all these little side discussions and became a part of them and kind of guided things to where I thought might be a nicer space for everyone. And from there, you moved across to the Boomers, joining them in 2016. How did that experience, you know, with, with Brighton Soccer help and influence you when you joined the Boomers and, and the role that you, you took on with them? I think it kind of etched my style and gave me confidence that you can make a difference and you can be heard even if you're not a loud, rumbunctious, you know, strong personality in a room, that there is room for the quiet people and that especially when I'm in a room, I look around for these people because I think that's where you can draw a lot of knowledge that hasn't already been exposed. So, you know, I'm not a confident speaker in a, in a large group and with a group of people who've been there before me, but just learnt to have the strength to continue on and pursue and work towards, you know, the goal that you set. I mean, there were some very big personalities in those early days at the boomers, uh, moving from being the Pauline boomers to being the Melbourne boomers. I mean, there was uh, Justin Nelson, Tony Hallam. There's there's some big personalities there that, that you, you were in the mix of. How did you yeah. find navigating your way through those personalities? Because, I mean, I remember both Jacinta and I uh, had a long conversation with, um, with Justin a while back on the podcast, and he was talking about those early days. And there was a lot going on. So how did you manage to navigate your way through what was happening there? I think recognising that they come with a lot of enthusiasm and passion but also a huge depth of knowledge and to just walk beside them and, and be part of what they were doing but not be afraid to step in and provide another perspective when you thought, you know, that's something that should be considered. Okay. And you've come from, again, finance, and you bring a lot of unique skills. And I think one of the things that maybe the listeners may not fully understand is the complexity of the financial picture for a WNBL club. So things like how important are ticket sales to a club? How important is the sponsorship? Look, initially in our first year or so, we really focused on our brand and our image and our reach. And so we gave away a lot of tickets and really got by each year by the skin of our teeth financially. But now we really rely on ticket sales and memberships and sponsorship because we've elevated what we provide for the players. So they really are existing in a professional sporting environment and so we need cash. So, you know, nurturing, really nurturing relationships if you – connect with someone who loves who you are and what you do, whether they put in a dollar or 10000 you really nurture that and bring them along with you and hopefully, you know, there's financial assistance that comes with that effort. And maybe a question a bit off script 
but on the similar topic for both of you, because you both have very unique standpoints with WNBL clubs, a current WNBL player went on another podcast and was speaking about the recommendation of pairing up WNBL clubs with NBL clubs in the same fashion that AFL and AFLW does. And while that sounds very easy and great to do on paper, um, they did touch on that there is probably a lot of things behind the scenes that would perhaps make that plan not so easy. So given your experience, Bernie, what would be some of the pros and cons of implementing something like that? The pros, definitely exposure and collecting the same crowd to take along with you so you would get, a, you know, a double draw of your fan base. So you would hope then that your stadiums would be filled for the NBL and WNBL games. There's more money around in men's sports, so leaning on that would be would be good at this point in time. But I would hate to see a loss of identity and the recognition of how spectacular the women's game is and the mind and body game that women play is quite different than the men. So I would hate for that to be lost in a two-for-one package-type existence. And, Vic, same question, given that Hoops Capital is already pretty much doing that, where the NBL and WNBL clubs are brother and sister clubs working under the same network. Yeah, I, I guess I'll jump into what Bernie's saying. You know, we struggle with this around double headers. We play four and, and that's kind of the number we've landed on at the moment. Um, I think for us, it's still so important to create a unique and, uh, you know, a, a unique and, and kind of flame specific fan base. And, and it's going to look and feel a lot different than the King specific fan base. And so creating an environment that is open to both, but also knowing that we, we need to cater to the flames and, and create an environment that's unique to them, I think is really kind of a, an ebb and flow that we play. And, and I think if we played, you know, all 10 home games as double headers, we'd really lose that identity. And, and that's not what we're looking to do. Um, you know, I think some of the, you know, I'll use my wording specifically, but uh, some of the kind of maybe preconceived conceptions around, you know, like it's cheaper to run a double header, for example, is not necessarily true or the case. And for us, you know, we have, you know, more people at kudos during a Flames game, and yet it feels way emptier than having, you know, less people at key center during a, a Flames game. And so for us, it's also about environment and crowd and and making sure we're we're doing right by our players because they deserve to play in an atmosphere that that feels alive and energized and obviously playing in somewhere as big as QBA, even if you have, you know, three, four, 5,000 people in there, it just doesn't feel like it. Um, and so that's kind of a continuous journey that we're on. And, and we'd love to get to a point where, you know, the Flames, uh, Kings doubleheaders are full for the whole two game um, in a day. And, and I think for us, a real test for that this season will be pink hoops. I think it's such a great cause and, and we're partnering with such a great organization in the McGraw Foundation and you all, all on this call and I'm sure everyone that listens to this podcast knows our, our club's connection um, to that cause and, and why it's really important to us and, and it's really important for us to, to fill a QBA for the Flames game as well as the Kings game on that occasion because it is so important and the work that the McGraw Foundation does is so important for us. Um, but I think Kind of going back to the original question, uh, you know, there's a lot of 
a lot of things that work really well. I think, you know, us getting a grant and the ability to build a high performance center for both teams, you know, I don't think we get funding if it's just the Kings or if it's just the Flames. I think things like that, programs like that, government support is really there for teams that can kind of showcase having, you know, men and women and and catering to that diversity, which is important. Because a couple of decades ago, the most NBL clubs and WNBL clubs were paired up. I certainly remember in Sydney, you would find that from the very first season that they were, that the two clubs were at the entertainment centre, there were generally good crowds. But as you said, even though you did have a good crowd, it looked kind of empty because it was such a big room to fill and it would fill up as time went on. Do you think that there's a good way to be able to promote people who may not necessarily come to a WNBL game to be able to get that enthusiasm level up to get into a game knowing that, you know, yes, we'll see a WNBL game and then an NBL game. How would you go about doing that? And I'm putting that to both of you because you've obviously got, you know, your own ideas on how that could be achieved. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. We definitely have Kings fans who would never have thought to have gone to a Flames game who will come early to watch the Flames play. And, and especially when you see little kids and and little boys wearing King's jerseys, getting super excited about the flames. I think that to me is really culture shifting and it is an opportunity that you get because those two teams are paired. And so I definitely think that's the case. I think vice versa, we have flames fans who probably go to King's games that, you know, wouldn't have if it wasn't a double header as well. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of quantify that on either side. You know, we don't sell tickets and ask who you're coming to see. They're all, you know, tickets through the same link, but I do think that there, and, you know, anecdotally speaking to people, there are people who come to those games specifically to see both teams, um, which I think is a really nice outcome. And I think you will see, you know, a shift in behavior as people become more aware of that we do them and that we do them a set number of times each season. And Bernie, I mean, the boomers aren't connected with uh, an NBL club, but is there a potential for... Um maybe connecting up for one game a season or a couple of games a season with one of the either Melbourne United or the Phoenix? Yeah, we've had a few short discussions about that. That's definitely something that could happen. It just needs a bit of planning, I think. Um, The NBL season is planned a fair bit ahead of ours and, yeah, it would be good. It would be good to do. Yeah, because... I mean, I, I look back at the John Kane Arena game last season for the WNBL. Uh, there's obviously an appetite because that was a full house. <laughs> um, I'm sure that there must be some way that we can try and leverage off each of the different audience groups for the NBL and WNBL to be able to, to fill a larger stadium um, on a semi-regular basis at least. I think that would be a really good thing to aim for because that game was fantastic and the the atmosphere in there was wonderful. And if you didn't know who was playing, you, you couldn't pick if it was WNBL or NBL. Mm. So definitely something that we should should explore and do. Yeah, absolutely. I think to, to echo that point, our biggest challenge as a league and as clubs is that we operate in kind of silence and, you know, without much marketing and much splash at a league level. I think, you know, that game was so well promoted across so many you know, different outlets and and mainstream media picked it up, which I think is just so important and goes to so many of the conversations around women's sports in general and how invisible they are. And to your point, Paul, there is appetite and we've seen there's appetite. It's just, you know, 
you have to get it in front of people and it has to be visible. Yeah, it was just a bit of a shame that there wasn't more traction off the back of that one game. It was fantastic and everyone loved it, but it was just a one-off event and we would have liked to see another one this season and then maybe a couple of them even. Okay. So let's move on now. Since we've been talking about these more common goals across both clubs and for both of you, Let's talk about some initiatives that you've you've both started. So, for example, in Melbourne, there's Mama Ball and in Sydney, Flames Club, which connects tech and VC world with the sports world. So I'd like to get into a little bit more detail about those those programs and how they came about. And, Bernie, I'll start off with you. Mama Ball is okay. a great initiative. How did it come about and, and how how is it? grown and and what have you learned from the program? We were fortunate to have a grant from Knox City Council when we were playing out at the State Basketball Centre to do some community work and we love connecting with the young basketballers but we also wanted to connect with different age groups. We did a little bit of work with teenagers but we came up with this idea for women, so it's women only and it's only coached by women so that they have um, a safe and um, respectful environment where they can learn basketball skills, improve their health and fitness. But we really found the gem that arose from it was the social well-being that comes out of those sessions, the connection that people have made with people in their community to form friendships and even basketball teams and to go see movies together because after the session we also provide morning tea so they all hang around and have a coffee and the coaches have a coffee with them and it's all free of charge. Um, We fund some of it. We get uh, some other funding as well, which we're very grateful for. It brings us a lot of joy and we are so glad to be continuing it and we've just started it this year at Parkville and that um, participation rate is growing there, but the one out at Juan Turner is fully subscribed every session. Wow. Uh, How many people uh, do you support or do you handle for each session? Um, Out at Knox we have up to 30, and it's interesting because they're various socioeconomic backgrounds, so it's really nice that this gives some of those women the opportunity to come out and do something for themselves that they wouldn't have the money to afford to do, but no one in the room knows, you know, who could afford to pay for that session and who couldn't. And how did you target? Um, I mean, it's a very specific group and certainly a group that gets forgotten uh, in basketball and I suppose group sport and community sport in general. So how did you go about, I guess, recruiting mums to come and come and train? Just through social media and through connecting with the council, local council, different basketball Facebook groups. Yeah, just intertwining word of mouth and then people will bring along a friend or someone from a certain basketball club will see the post and come along and then the next time they bring someone else. So it's a really vast network of people. It's not like everyone who, you know, was connected already will come along and take up the spaces. So it's a new beginning for people to have a new social network but also something that's good for their health as well. Because I imagine it's something that a lot of people and a lot of mums would feel reluctant to join by themselves whether they had a playing history or not. 
So uh, yeah, what was the, kind of the percentage of people who would come and participate? How many of them actually came with a friend or in a small group? Um, probably half and half. We get quite a lot of people who do come on their own and some who've never played basketball before and others who played as a kid. So our coaches are really good at adapting the session every single week around who they see is there and who's coping with what they're teaching and how they can adapt each skill to elevate someone and bring, you know, simplify a drill. Like they're just great, our coaches, and they're all either current or ex-WNBL players as well. So they've got pretty good skill set to draw on to teach. Uh, to me, that sounds like one of those initiatives that probably is going to have more impact than people realise because you're not just getting people to play and learn to play, but you're basically building a community around basketball, which then leads to, as you said, you know, they go and see a movie, they'll catch up for coffee or whatever it is. So there's more going on here than just the basketball aspect. Were you surprised by how that aspect of it of the program took off absolutely surprised and delighted because yeah we just thought well, probably there's mums out there or even people who aren't parents but you know want to get out of the house and meet new people that maybe basketball is a good conduit to get out of the house so what it's brought to the participants and to us providing it we've just we've just loved it it's just yeah expansive <laughs> Okay, now Vic, I want to talk about the Flames Club a little bit because you've taken a very different direction. You've connected the tech and VC world with the sports world. I could honestly say from one of the CEOs that did join you at the event not that long ago, they were very impressed. I have to do the quick shout out to Joanne Cooper from World Data Exchange because the feedback she gave on that event, it was really great. It was like, it was not only do you get to meet and speak to people from your world, but then you're also getting to see what's happening with a team on the floor and seeing things that potentially can be used in the corporate world and corporate life. How did the idea of the Flames Club come about and how's it been going for you? Uh, yeah, thank you, and and thank you for that feedback. It's it's always it's always nice to hear positive feedback about what you're doing. I think you know, Flames Club kind of came out of two things. One, I read an article about the number of deals. I think it was the number of deals that men do on the golf course and footy games and and things like that. Um, and you know, I touched on it earlier, but you know, there's so many parallels between women in sports and women in the business world, you know, for me, the, the area I understand and exposed to the most is, is the venture capital and, and tech world. But, you know, a, a lot of it's just access to, to networks and capital is really kind of the, the main differences. And so for me, it was like, how can I bridge, you know, that statistic around, you know, all these deals that get done that, that a lot of women in that world just aren't in the room to, to hear. But also, how can I bring it together with, with the flames and, and a world that, you know, I see a real appetite for? And so that was kind of, you know, the, the idea I'm thinking about it. I think even, you know, there's so many great connections that I see and, and the authenticity of, of bringing a group together in a fun environment that's out of left field for a lot of them. Like I said, you know, most of the women in Flames Club you know, have, have never watched basketball, let alone been to a game. And, and so for me, that's really, really exciting and, and creating new authentic fans. I mean, we all, 
uh, been to many WNBL games and and for me it's so rewarding to see first timers come because that like passion and excitement like re-energizes me even in you know games where exciting game not exciting game when you see someone see something for the first time it it kind of you're like wow this is actually really really incredible and so for me it was it was a lot about kind of bringing those two worlds together i think there's so many other ways and and things we're going to you know evolve into but for me it's it's just been organic today and you know i think it's worked nicely i think the other kind of real glaring fact to me that Flames club can help address right is is the number of our players who have second jobs right now or who will very quickly post retirement from WNBL be starting their career and this Flames club and the amazing women in that ecosystem can help bridge the gap for some of our players from a career perspective i think that's also an incredible benefit you know i i can only imagine you know going from a professional basketball career to another career but i think that startups and the team environment in that world are are very conducive and a lot of the same skills and so for me that's the kind of other you know exciting thing of of bridging these two worlds together now before i kind of get into other initiatives that you guys might have in the pipeline. I want to talk about the league and the sport itself. Now, you're both involved in trying to work on solving issues that move the sport forward. Can you share with the audience what sort of issues are being looked at and addressed and what are the outcomes that both of you see will be the best way to to grow the sport at that elite level while we're still supporting and bringing the grassroots along on the journey as well. I think, Do you want to go first? Yeah, people who are interested in the basketball world probably read in the papers last year that the WNBL loses, will lost $6 million the year before. That's across all the clubs and the league. So it's time for more money to be invested. So Vic and I are involved in helping the league steer towards how do we make that happen? How do we help the clubs exist financially and thrive so that they can ensure that these amazing athletes are getting the professional environment that they deserve to work work in and also the paycheck to take home. So that, you know, it's kind of a point of of help and, and need for something to change. So, you know, it's it's really great and exciting to be part of that decision-making process to hopefully elevate and lift that to something better for the players and the league. So how do we do that? Like uh, you mentioned that you're trying to steer the league in the right direction to get some more financial assistance to make it professional. So what? how, how does the league do that? That is a very good question. <laughs> Oh, look, the biggest hurdle I see is lack of exposure. So how do we get the WNBL in the papers, on billboards, in the news? Like why why doesn't the news report the WNBL results when they report the NBL results? Why? Why is that? So there's a lot of questions, but we'll keep pushing towards how do we jump those barriers and it's time now to make all that happen. Something I was reminded of on the weekend is that there's a – unfortunate disconnect between the WNBL and grassroots basketball or even uh, clubland basketball at the junior and representative level. So on the weekend I met a lot of uh, different women from different New South Wales associations with different roles in those associations and then we got to see a WNBL game 
that afternoon on the Saturday and their knowledge of the WNBL, the teams we were watching, just the basic kind of knowledge was very limited. And I, that's not their fault as, as people and people involved in basketball, but I was just really surprised to see that disconnect between if representative junior basketball is the starting of the pathway to the WNBL, but the two seem totally dissociated. And I, I want to just add a little bit to that comment. I actually found out that some people that our producer Mary knows this one kind of surprised me. One of them plays rep basketball here in Sydney. Did not know that the WNBL existed. Not that the Flames didn't exist. The league. They didn't know the league existed. So there's obviously huge untapped audience within association land where if there's one, there's going to be many more. And as Jacinta rightly said, there's lots of people who have very poor knowledge of the league there's a ready-made audience here that should, if we can identify a great way to grow that knowledge, should be able to provide a relatively quick boost in numbers to the audience. How do we do that? Yeah, and, and I've heard you, Jacinta, um, and, and noted that it's in New South Wales. I, I know, and, you know, it, it predates me and it predates a lot of people who are currently involved, but, but the pathway from from New South Wales into the flames has not been existent for a few years. Um, and it's definitely something we're focused on, on reconnecting and, and reinvigorating. Um, you probably noticed we specifically went after quite a number of New South Wales players in our team this season to try and start making some of those linkages. The girls just did a regional tour um, with Harvey Norman up into Newcastle to kind of re-engage with, with some of the audiences up there. I think there is a lot of work for us to do within the basketball ecosystem itself, right? Like you've seen how many people go to NBL one games and, and that's not translating into our games. And and so for us, you know, as a club, it, it is a really high priority to re-engage with some of those audiences and do a lot more work from a community perspective. I think community is something that, that the Melbourne Boomers do a lot a lot with and, and we have a lot to learn from people like Bernie as we kind of navigate those paths. But I do hear you and, and it is something we, we are aware of as an opportunity for us to grow. Yes, and credit where credit's due because all five, well, four of your five DPs are New South Wales, what play, have played in New South Wales. Some playing, you know, NBL1, you've got Isla Juffman's is the New South Wales country representative. And, of course, you've got one of your assistant coaches who also grew up and played in New South Wales who will... When we spoke to Chris Pongrass towards the end of Season 5, he also did mention that Renee's expertise in knowing the local talent is going to be very handy. And I think comparatively to other WNBL clubs like Canberra and Perth in particular, they've done a very good job of making that pathway from being a local junior to a WNBL club very clear, which is something I like that they have done, yeah, really well. So um, I think you're definitely stepping in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I would also add Fleur uh, in that list, you know, obviously from she's on the King side, but, but she does quite a lot of work with New South Wales junior uh, females coming through and, and we definitely lean on her as well. Okay. And Bernie, is it... From the Melbourne side of things, is what could you add to that particular issue of you know the the lack of uh, awareness of the WNBL? Um, I think we'll keep chipping away, connecting and gaining exposure. We go out to Gippsland each year 
to bring a game to that region because there's a big basketball fan base out there, lots of big participation rate, and we enjoy that. And that community, you know, comes even to Melbourne to see us. The other thing we're doing is a Come Train With Us program, which invites participants to apply to come in and experience what it's like to be a WNBL player. And they can come from, actually one participant came from Canberra last week to join that program with us so that they know about the WNBL and what to expect if they want to pursue a career in the WNBL. I think little things like that help, but just a lot more national level exposure would be great in the media, you know, even the smallest amount, it would grow. One person picks up the information and shares it. We just need some good luck in something like that happening for the league and soon would be great. I would just like to add, I think, you know, Melbourne of any club, you know, ourselves included, have done the most proactive, you know, marketing. They had a documentary made, like they're doing a lot to create a public splash. But I, I hear Bernie on a national scale, it's really hard to do that as one club in, in one you know market. It really needs to be a league-wide and league-led effort. So let me ask, and you may not want to spill the beans on this, but what other initiatives have you guys got in the pipeline that you know we could look forward to or you know, that, that people out there can kind of wait to get more details on? that either of the clubs or any, anyone else that you're aware of is doing? I mean, the big one for us, and, and you'll definitely see a ramp up post-Christmas, is, as I mentioned, Pink Hoops and, and really ramping up our work uh, with the McGraw Foundation and, and promoting that game. But I, but I guess in terms of specific initiatives beyond this season, you know, for us, it's a lot about kind of what we just talked about, community and growing the things that we're already doing. You know, there is work, and, and Bernie kind of touched on it, league level to try and get more aligned and have a clearer path forward but you know i wish i had a secret recipe in in my back pocket but you know to bernie's point we're still chipping away at at trying to find the sustainable solution for the next five ten years of the league and there's no uh there's no secret that we're hiding and it just is still you know in the process of being chipped away at (laughs) with england south anything to go by pink hoops is gonna be a success does that mean you already have one? Well, someone, I haven't even looked yet. Someone sent me a screenshot showing what was left. So I don't think I'll be able to get one because I've been too slow. <laughs> well, you know, I, I know a guy, so feel free to send me your, uh, your sizing information if you can't get one on the website. <laughs> okay, I will. Thank you. <laughs> so, Bernie, coming out of Melbourne, are there other initiatives that you guys have got in the pipeline that you can share? Not really. We're working hard at keeping everything going that we're doing at the moment. I think we took a big risk moving out to Parkville, which is just outside of the city in Melbourne. We really had to start with scratch and build a new fan base, but we just thought in the long term we wanted to be part of the city of Melbourne and something that if someone's visiting the city and is looking for something to do, it we're on their doorstep. So You know, we're all working for a better basketball world for our clubs and sometimes you just have to be a little bit brave and put yourself out there and and do these things. I I think it's paying off for us and we are enjoying being out there at Parkville. Okay, that that brings up the obvious question because what you mentioned that, you know, you've made a big shift away from where your traditional fan base was. How did that 
go down with the fan base? And more importantly, how much of your fan base moved along with you? We got a few fans who were quite upset and said they would never come to Parkville. But then on the flip side, many have, and they've realised it's not that far. It's quite easy to get to. It's a lovely stadium. The big draw card is the facilities for the players. It's a really wonderful stadium and everything's there. All of the training pre-game and and after-game recovery stuff is there. So I think from a professional athlete perspective, it was a good move. But, yeah, I I think we've managed to drag a lot of our fans with us, so I think it's worked. And I've got some feedback to share, Bernie, from the fans, not related to the venue change, but related to the memberships. A couple of Melbourne Boomers members have let me know that uh, the membership packs were really, really good this year. Oh, great. Oh, thank you for that. That's good. Good to hear. Yeah. Okay. I really would like to thank both of you for coming on to talk about all of these issues and items that we've gotten into because... We covered a lot of territory, and there is a lot more to cover, but we have to keep it you know, fairly reasonable. We don't want to keep you here till midnight. Um, but seriously, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insight into the different perspectives you both bring to the game and to the clubs. And we're obviously going to keep watching very carefully to see how this develops and what amazing and interesting new stories are going to come out of these initiatives that you're both pushing forward for the clubs. Thank you both. And, you know, I think Bernie and I both touched upon it, but one of the league's biggest challenges, right, is is getting out there and and promoting ourselves. So thank you both for the work that you do uh, with this podcast and and promoting and and creating fans for us as well. Yes, thanks for the opportunity and and the platform to share our stories. Uh, We love hearing stories like this. Again, thank you so much and look forward to keeping an eye on how things go and we'll definitely um, be touching base with you in the future to see how things have developed. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you get our latest pod and we really appreciate if we could get a like and a review so we can extend the reach to more listeners. And don't forget, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn.